passage we're going to study today gives us a powerful image of the judgment to come. As we look at the passage, one truth should stand out to us. It's how active Jesus is in bringing judgment. The picture of Jesus we're going to see in this passage is completely contrary to the image of Jesus presented in our culture today. Our world today pictures and presents Jesus as a totally non-judgmental, kind of just love people kind of guy who accepts all people regardless of, of anything else in their lives. The view is seen in pictures like this. My God loves everyone. My God loves everyone. Now, to be clear, those are true statements. Our God does love everyone. He loves those in the community represented in this picture right here. He loves them. Jesus died for them. There's no doubts about that in God's word. Jesus does accept everyone to come to him and be saved. So the, the problem with these pictures isn't so much in the words. It's in the application of the words. The conclusions drawn from the words. The conclusion drawn from the words is often that Jesus' love and acceptance of the person is the same as love and acceptance and endorsement or acceptance of the person's lifestyle. This is further drawn out to present an idea of, of basically everyone going to heaven unless they are really, really bad people. Clearly, Hitler wouldn't go to heaven. Clearly, Osama bin Laden wouldn't go to heaven. But everyone else, unless they have committed these severe and grievous sins, they're going to be good to go because Jesus loves everyone. Jesus accepts everyone. He accepts them as they are. He doesn't. They can just stay the way they are and they are fine to make it into heaven. What we're going to look at today, pretty graphically, I would say, refutes this false belief and presents us with a, a very challenging view of Jesus. So open your Bible to Revelation 19, verse 11 is where we're going to start. should be on page 960 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I must get a stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 19 and 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the, on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The title of the message is the return of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are our rock and our fortress, our very present help in times of trouble. Father, you are the ruler of all things. Our lives, our world are all in your hands. In you we live, move, and have our being. Our very breath, we have it because you have willed it and you have given it to us as a gift. Guide us, O oh Lord, to understand that. Our lives are gifts from you. Let us live as though that were true. Father, today we look at this passage and it's, it's difficult. It is Kind of disturbing at just a natural level. Some of the ways things are described and what we'll see. But nonetheless, it's true. It is what's coming. It is what will happen. It is what Jesus will do. So today, let your Holy Spirit come and open our minds to receive from your word what we need to receive. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and Anoint me that my speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom. But it would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So people's faith would not stand in my eloquence or my wisdom. But in your power and in your truth. Guide me I would say what you once said. Nothing more and nothing less. And let us respond to your word in the ways that we ought to respond. For those that have not received Jesus as their Savior. Let this be a, a wake-up call that would draw them to Christ for salvation. For those that are sort of nominal or lukewarm in their relationship with Jesus, let this be a wake-up call to stir them to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. For those who are devoted disciples of Jesus, let this stir us to be passionate evangelists telling the gospel the time is short. Have your way in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The life of Jesus could be outlined around seven major events. His birth or his incarnation. The baptism of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. The death. The crucifixion of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. The ascension. And then the return of Jesus. This passage is about the return of Jesus. This passage pictures Jesus' return as visible 
as it says in the Gospels, every eye shall behold Him. Physical, He literally, physically comes back. And victorious, He wins the final victory over the beast, the false prophet, and over the dragon and the kingdom in which they build. The key lesson for us from this is Jesus' return will be in glory and power to execute justice and judgment on all who reject or oppose Him. That really is what we see in this passage. Jesus returns visibly, physically, victoriously in power. He executes justice and He brings judgment on all who reject and or Opposing. With this, there are three truths about the return of Jesus we have to know. Number one, Jesus is coming. The first, the second coming of Jesus will be very different than the first coming of Jesus. The first coming went largely unnoticed, but in the second coming, every eye will behold him. In the first coming, Jesus was meek and mild, but in the second coming, Jesus is a conquering king. In the first coming, Jesus came as a suffering servant. In the second coming, Jesus comes as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. The first coming, Jesus was rejected by many as the Messiah. The second coming, Jesus will be recognized by all as Lord. The first coming, Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. But in the second coming, Jesus comes to make war and to execute the judgment of God on those who have rejected him. John's description of Jesus in verses 11 and 12 is interesting. It tells us much about who Jesus is. And what he's like. Verse 11 it says. And I saw heaven opened. And behold a a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful. Jesus is faithful. The idea of Jesus being faithful. Is he will do all he has said. He would do. With the idea of Jesus. Being faithful. there, There should be comfort. In large measure for us. As disciples of Jesus. He will save us like He said He will. He will forgive us as He said He would. He will free us as He said He would. He will take us to be with Him as He promised. So there is great comfort in the fact Jesus is faithful. But there is also an element of that is frightening about Jesus being faithful. Jesus told two parables at least that spoke of His bringing judgment. Matthew 25, there's the parable of the talents and the parable of the separation of the the sheep and the goats. And we, we don't have time to look at them, but if you read Matthew 25, you'll see them. The parable of the talents, the master gives talents to people, tells them to do business till he comes back. And then when he comes back, he calls them into account for what they've done. Those who are faithful with what the Master had given them, are welcomed and told, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter 
to the joy of your Lord. But one took the master's talent and buried it and did nothing with it what the master said. And he was called a worthless and lazy servant, was bound and cast into outer darkness, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Separation parable. Jesus is pictured sitting on a throne, separating the sheep from the goats. And it's a very similar image. He takes those that had done the Father's will and He welcomes them. But those who had not are rejected and they are cast into hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said He would bring judgment. And since Jesus said He will bring judgment. He must bring judgment if he is to be faithful. Imagine if if when my daughters were little, I told them, if you clean your room without griping and complaining by three o'clock in the afternoon, then I'll take you to go and get ice cream. But if you don't, if you don't clean it, if you gripe and complain, Not only are you not going to get ice cream, there are going to be negative consequences for your refusal to do what I've said. How do I prove myself to be a man of my word in that situation? How do I prove myself to be faithful in that moment? By doing what I said I would do, whichever way it needs to be done. By taking them to get ice cream if they've cleaned their room and they've done it without griping and complaining. And by giving them the negative consequences I said I would give them. If they did gripe and complain or they didn't do, they'll clean the room as I said they should. The only way I can show myself to be faithful is to do what I said I would do. The only way Jesus can be faithful is if he does everything he said he would do. And Jesus not only promised these wonderful, comforting, good things. Jesus promised a judgment, but not just a judgment, but that he is the one. Who would execute the judgment. Jesus is faithful. And so he will do what he has said he will do. It goes on. The one on the horse is called faithful and true. So Jesus is true. Again very similar to the idea of being faithful. Everything Jesus said is true. And as with being faithful. This includes those that we would call good things. And those that we might call bad things. For example. For God so loved the world. He gave his only son. That everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but so the world might be saved through Him. The one who believes in Him is not judged. The one who does not believe in Him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in this passage, familiar passage, Jesus talks about God loves the world. Jesus died for the world. He did this so... Everyone who believes in Him could be saved and not perish, have eternal life. He says that He wasn't sent to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Those who believe will never be judged, will never be condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned. His condemnation is based upon the fact he didn't believe in Jesus. Which of those statements are true? Is it true Jesus loves the world? God loves the world? Is it true Jesus died for the world? Is it true everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life? Is it true those who believe in Him will never be condemned? Yes, those are all true statements. 
But is it also true those who don't believe in him will be condemned? Yes, that is also a true statement. For Jesus to be true, for him to be one who speaks truth, all of his words must be true whether we like them or whether we don't like them. So it is true. Jesus will save everyone who believes. It is also true those who don't believe will be condemned. It is true Jesus comes to to grab his church and grab his people in the last days. And it is also true he comes to execute judgment on those who reject him. It is true. He is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Jesus executes judgment. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now, all Jesus does in his judgment is righteous. It is a a just judgment. Now, from what we see in this passage, it is a, a merciless judgment. But it is just. How can we say for sure what Jesus does is righteous and just in this judgment? Well, a couple of ways. One, again in verse 20, we've reminded of this several times throughout the last couple of weeks. This is falling on those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. This is falling on those who rejected Jesus. Right? This isn't just random people. These are people who actively rejected Jesus. They pledged their allegiance and their worth and their worship to the beast. And they served the dragon. And this, again, this idea of pledging to the beast and to the dragon isn't just something for the end times. In the end times, it becomes very formal. You have to choose it and take the mark. But in our day, the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of God is at work in our world all the time. Calling us to choose one or the other. And and everybody chooses. Everybody chooses either to follow the Antichrist and to serve the dragon. Or to follow the spirit and to serve Jesus. But not only is this righteous because of what the people have chosen, it's righteous because of who Jesus is. Right? Notice in verse 12 it says, His eyes are a flame of fire. This is a picture from Daniel 10 and 6, and it pictures Jesus knowing all things. We've seen this image earlier uh, in the seven churches. Jesus, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and so He can see into the dark recesses of our heart. He he knows. He knows what's really there. And, and what this allows him to do is this allows him to make a just judgment about us. Right? You and I, we can't really make just judgments about people. Because we don't know what's in their heart. We don't know for sure what's gone on in their lives. But Jesus knows those things we do not know. Now now This is kind of a rabbit trail, and it's not in my notes, but it's just an interesting thought that came to me just now. Many in our day would say it's not fair for Jesus to judge in this way, even though Jesus knows the heart. But the same people who would say it's not fair for Jesus to judge in this way make the same sort of judgments themselves. Our culture is all about judging who is worthy, who is good, who is right, and who is bad. And we make those judgments in absolution. It is absolutely I'm right, despite the fact we can't see their hearts. 
We attribute to ourselves an ability we do not grant to Jesus. How idolatrous is our nation and is our culture that we think we can accurately do things Jesus cannot. Jesus can judge the heart because he can see the depths. Jesus can see everything that is hidden and has been brought to life. We, we saw this in the seven churches repeatedly. Jesus would say, I know your works. I saw what you did. Now, many times that was very comforting to the churches. They had done things the world had not noticed. They had done things the world had not cared about that Jesus saw. And Jesus cared. If you remember, there were times that was not comforting. They had sins they had tried to hide. They had embraced false doctrine they were trying to keep from everyone knowing. And Jesus saw that as well. Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. And so he can see all things and he can know all things. And he can execute a righteous judgment on all people. Then Jesus will rule. The last of verse 12. He has a. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Jesus wears many crowns. The the many crowns are a visual illustration of the truth of verse 16. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the absolute ruler over all. He is now the King over kings and the Lord over lords. But there is a day coming when he will prove he is the king over kings and the Lord over lords. He will come as the king and bring people to account for what they've done under his reign in their lives. The key truth to understand from this section is Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will return in glory. He will return in power. And he will execute justice and judgment on all who oppose him. Secondly, Jesus will conquer. The rest of this chapter is about what Jesus will do and the judgment he brings. At this point, all the people who are left on the earth are the enemies of God and of his Christ. They will fight against Jesus and his rule on the earth. The reality is their fight against Jesus' rule on the earth is merely a reflection of their fight against Jesus' rule in their personal lives. See, that's why they're fighting against his rule on the earth is because they have resisted and rejected his rule in their life. Now, as we look at this picture of Jesus coming to conquer, it is it is graphic. Right? Verse 13 He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, the picture of things being dipped in blood is, is not uncommon in God's Word. Frequently in the Old Testament, the blood of sacrifices was put on stuff to cleanse it. What is most intense about this is this is not the blood of Jesus sent to cleanse sinners. This is rather the blood of His enemies. But it says that he is going to tread out in verse 15. He will tread out the winepress, the fierce wrath of God. We've seen that picture before. Wine is pressed out when grapes are put into a vat and then they're stomped. 
and crushed until the juice runs out. The picture here is the blood of his enemies is on his robe because of how fervently he is executing this judgment. Now, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah speaks of the future when God will have trodden the wine trough alone from the peoples and there was no one with me. Trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And notice their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained my clothes. Do you see the connection, the similarities between this passage and this passage? This is a righteous judgment. But it is a judgment without mercy. We also told in verse 13, Jesus has called the word of God. Here's what a, a Bible study I have had to say about this thought. In Hebrew thought, a word is not a lifeless sound, but an active agent that, that achieves the intention of the one who speaks. The idea in, in Hebrew thought likely is based at least partially on what we see in Genesis 1. Right? God spoke. And things happened. The idea here is Jesus is the execution of God's power and will. As the word of God, God has spoken this word. And Jesus is the one who has the power and will execute God's judgment on the earth. Now an interesting picture with this of Jesus being the word of God is in verse 15. Jesus has a the word, a sharp sword coming from his mouth. Now... I believe the sharp sword coming from his mouth is not a literal sword, but more realistically, the word of God. But it is called the sword of the spirit, the word of God in Ephesians. The word of God is sharpening a two edged sword, Hebrews four. And I believe what this pictures is not Jesus having a literal sword out of his mouth, but more he uses the word of God to bring this judgment. How does he use the word of God to bring judgment on people? Well, look at Revelation 20 and verse 12. This speaks of the final judgment at the throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now notice there are books opened. The book of life plus other books. Now, the way I understand this, and we'll talk about this in the future when we get to this passage. I believe the books, the book of life is the book that has the record of those who are saved. But the other books that are opened, I believe one book would be, say, the record of our lives. What we've done, how we've lived. And then the other book would be God's word. So... The way I picture this happening is the book of life will be opened and come down and no, that name's not there. I'm sorry. And then the person, of course, because they're humans, will say, it's not fair. I don't deserve this sort of judgment. I was a good person. So the book of their deeds will be read. You committed adultery. And God's word says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You place this over Jesus. And God's word said, you shall have no other gods before me. You lived a selfish life. And God's word said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Right? You see what will happen is 
there'll be, here's what you've done. Here's what the word of God says. And what's going to happen with this is it will reveal the truth of what Romans teaches us. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. So here's what will happen. is Here's what you've done. Here's what the word said. Rather than that justifying the person, then going, see, I told you I was a good person. It's going to prove over and over again you've sinned against God. You fell short of the standards of God. You did what God said not to do. You refused to do what God said to do. And rather than the person boasting before God, you are a horrible monster. I don't deserve this. Their mouth will be stopped. And they will in that moment, for the first time probably in their lives, recognize they're deserving of the judgment to come. The word of God will make it clear as it is compared to their lives. This is how Jesus uses the word from his mouth. Declares it, he proclaims it, and it continually just proves they have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And they are getting what they truly deserve in life because they have rejected Jesus. In verse 14, we see the armies of heaven come. But notice how they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They're following him on horses. Now, the fine linen, white and clean is a clear picture back up to verse 8. Of the bride, which is the church, the believers of all ages and generations. So the picture here, I don't think this pictures the people of God fighting in the in the battle of Armageddon. People of God can't win the battle of Armageddon. Only Jesus can. Instead, it's more of a picture of we watch, we see. We're there to sort of view this last day and to see Jesus Win this final victory. Then in the last of verse 15 it says that Jesus strikes down the nations. And he rules them with a rod of iron. The picture is taken from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9. Where it talks about God's anointed king shattering the nations who oppose him. As an iron rod would shatter pottery. It's a cool picture. Um, in in the world of Psalm 2, when the psalmist wrote, particularly in Egypt, when they were getting ready to go to war, Pharaoh would stand up before the armies and before the people, and he would have, say, a table up here, and it would be pottery, and it would have the names of the nations he was going to fight, that they were going to fight against, and he would have his scepter as Pharaoh, and he would, you know, kind of, it was kind of a rah rah speech. Will Assyria stand against Pharaoh and all the armies of Egypt? Why? No! Right? And it was just a, a picture of what Pharaoh was doing, was trying to get into the mind of his people. We will defeat them as easily as I smash pottery with my rod. This picture in Psalm is the Messiah wins just as easily as you would smash pottery with a rod. This isn't a real fight. Right? This isn't an equally matched battle, but Jesus wins. No, no. Jesus wins as easily as you would smash pottery with an iron rod. 
It is a total victory. It is a effortless victory. And it is all done at the hand of Jesus. Verse 17 and 18. We're given a contrast in images of feasts. In, in last week, we looked at the marriage of the lamb where people are invited to come to the marriage of the lamb. But here we're giving almost a grotesque image of another feast. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great feast of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit upon them. And the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, small and great. I mean, that is quite a contrast. In verse 9, the saints are invited to the wedding feast. In verse 17 and 18, scavengers are invited to feast on the bodies of the dead. In verse 9, we see a picture of life through Jesus. Verse 17 and 18, we see a picture of death apart from Jesus. Those who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord are invited to eat in a feast. Those who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, they become a feast for the scavengers of the air. Verse 19 through 21 is the end of the battle. The beast, the Antichrist... False prophet, they lose badly. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne and against his army. The beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive, the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's no real battle. It's not close. It's not almost. They line up and Jesus takes it in hand and ends it. This, I think, is important for us as disciples of Jesus to know. We don't live here yet. In this time, there are going to be lots of battles, lots of skirmishes. The enemy is going to win. There are going to be times where it looks like he's winning overall. We, we, we will see that. Can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus in Afghanistan right now? I read something this morning. Something like 17 disciples of Jesus were kidnapped and murdered in Haiti last night. They left a villa, uh, a uh, orphanage where they had helped some people out. They were taken as soon as they left the orphanage. They were taken and they were murdered. Can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus there? Surely there it looks like the enemy is winning battles. It looks like the enemy is overcoming. But take heart, disciples of Jesus in Haiti. Take heart, disciples of Jesus in Afghanistan. Take heart, disciples of Jesus in Gaiman. In the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins the final battle. The, the, The smaller skirmishes, they matter. They hurt. They're dangerous. They're painful. But in the end, Jesus wins. And those who have sided with Jesus through repentance and faith, they get to be a part of this victory. And those who have rejected Jesus and resisted his rule over their lives, they are conquered in this ultimate victory. When Jesus returns, he will return in glory and power 
And he will execute judgment and justice on all who oppose him. Now, those are the key big truths about what we see directly from the passage. There's one more that I want to talk about today, which I believe is the greatest implication for us today in light of what we've just seen. Everyone must choose a side. When you look at this passage, there are only two sides. There are those who are with Jesus and there are those who opposed Jesus. That's it. There there was no Switzerland. No one was neutral. The two sides on this day are those who are with Jesus through repentance and faith and being his disciples and those who opposed Jesus by resisting and rejecting his rule and his reign over their lives. Now, what's true of this day is true of our day as well. There are only two sides. There is Jesus and the dragon. And those are the only two sides there are. And for someone to not choose Jesus, they are choosing the dragon. No one is Switzerland. No one gets to not decide. To even to say, well, I'm not going to choose right now, is to say I'm rejecting Jesus who is calling us to come to Him and to say I'm siding with the dragon who is opposed to Him. Those two sides are the only sides there are. Now, something that's interesting in this. Those who are on Jesus' side are dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, what is the fine linen that's white and clean? Well, from verse 8, it is both the righteousness given to us by Jesus and the righteous acts performed by us after we've been made righteous. So if we take this at face value, then being on Jesus' side is more than just saying, well, I believe in Jesus. I'm on Jesus' side. Certainly I don't, I'm not on the devil's side. I'm on Jesus' side. But then doing whatever we want to. Right? If we, if we claim to be on Jesus' side, but, but we do whatever we want to do, those aren't the righteous acts of the saints, are they? We aren't truly on Jesus' side. When we're on Jesus' side, He gives us righteousness and that righteousness compels us, makes us desire to do His will. It's like in Titus, where it says that the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness and to live righteously and soberly in this present age. So, the grace of God Saves us. And then it begins to disciple us. To teach us. Stop doing this. Start doing that. That's the picture here. So the question is not do I mouth the words I'm on Jesus' side. The question is does my life show I'm on Jesus' side. So since everyone must choose a side, there are three questions I want to leave us with. What side or whose side am I on? 
Right now, every one of us is on one side or another. I'm not neutral. You're not neutral. No one is neutral. We'll talk a bit about others in a second. But before we think about what side other people are on, we better be sure we know what side we're on. The Bible does talk about people who on the last day say, Lord, Lord, we we did these things in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. So are you on Jesus's side? The Apostle Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see if Jesus is among us. That passage, 2 Corinthians 13, maybe verse 5, super important. He doesn't say, did you pray a prayer? He doesn't say, did you kneel at an altar? Did you invite Jesus into your heart? Were you baptized? Did you go to church? He didn't say any of that. Do you see evidence of Jesus being in your life? And he says, if you don't, that should be evidence to you that you failed the test. You're not saved. Does our life demonstrate we're on Jesus' side? If so, if we say, yes, it does, how? How does your life, how does my life demonstrate I'm on Jesus' side? This is not a minor question. This is not a minor thing to think through. This is significant. Much hangs in the balance on whether or not we're right about this. Better to spend some time in fearful examination and find out for sure. And to confidently assume and be wrong on the last day. What side am I on? Secondly, what am I doing to get others on Jesus' side? If there's only two sides, and everyone is on one side or the other, and everyone who resists and rejects Jesus ends up in judgment, then I need to be busy trying to get as many people as possible on team Jesus. So what are we doing to try to get people on Jesus' side? I, I don't want to try to add condemnation to anyone's life. I'm not as active at personal one-on-one outside the church evangelism as I ought to be. I want to say that up front. I'm not saying... Everything would be better if y'all were. (laughs) Y'all should just be better. More like me and the world would be a better place. Now I'm saying we're all. We're all struggling along the path here. But if there's only the two sides. And if those who don't end up on side of Jesus do face judgment. There ought to be an urgency in our lives to, to do what we can to get people on team Jesus. Because again, it... We, we know people who aren't on Team Jesus. We know people who probably say they're on Team Jesus, but their lives are not filled with the righteous acts of the saints and they demonstrate they're not on Team Jesus. We, we can't fool ourselves. We, we can't just assume, well, I, I like them, so I'm sure they're okay. We must do what we can. We must look for opportunities to plant gospel seeds in their lives. We must pray 
fervently for their salvation. We must look for opportunities to water the gospel seeds in their life. We must pray for God to do whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus. Their souls are worth more than their comfort. Their souls are worth more than their earthly prosperity. Their souls are worth more than our relationship with them. Their souls are worth more than everything. What are we doing to get others on Jesus' side? And then finally, what am I waiting on? We don't have an unlimited amount of time to choose Jesus' side or to get others on Jesus' side. By the time we get to Revelation 19, there is no salvation. The day of grace has passed. And there is nothing but judgment. No matter what these people do, they will not be saved. They are condemned. The Bible does speak in those terms often like that. Think about in the flood. Do do you think, remember Noah spent, we think, 120 years as a preacher of righteousness. And yet only his family got on the boat. And then God shut the door. So for 120 years he called on people to repent, to believe, to join with him. And they didn't. And then God shut the door and the rains came and the floods burst up. Do you really think that people just sit at home like, oh, this is interesting. Water's up to my waist just like Noah said it was. I'm sure he's wrong. Don't you imagine they, Noah, we changed our mind. We believe you. Noah, open the door. Noah, hey, hey, we want in, Noah. We believe you. You're right. Don't you believe they heard that on the outside of the ark? But it was too late. The door was closed. It wasn't going to be opened. The reality is, when people die, the door closes. And it can't be reopened. There is a great gulf fixed, the Bible tells us, between heaven and where the, the judged go. And one cannot cross from one to the other. So when someone dies, doors shut, mercy's gone, just judgment. And we think, well, we have plenty of time, but, but do we? Has, has 2020 and 2021 taught us that life's short? Things change at a moment's notice? How many of us have had people that were healthy one day and dead for one reason or another the next? Heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, bad actions of other people. We, we can't guarantee those we're trying to get on Jesus' side have years for us to work up the courage. Years for us to live a certain way in front of them and them to see it and ask. We, we have to know. They, we don't know when their last moment will be. We don't know when our last moment will be. There is a limited amount of time. So what are we waiting on? 
to be sure, one, we're on Jesus' side. What are we waiting on to try to get others on Jesus' side? I'm going to have a time to respond this morning. I want you to stand. If you want to come to the altars, you can. You can pray where you are. And I want you to pray. If you're not on Jesus' side, take this opportunity and settle that and be sure about it. If you are on Jesus' side, pray for a burden for those who are not. Pray for a boldness and an urgency. The only thing that will get them on Jesus' side, the only thing that saves them, is the good news about Jesus. Morals, church attendance, being kind, none of that saves. They must repent. They must believe. And they cannot do that unless they hear the message. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. If you want to come to the altars, you can. If not, you can pray where you are.